He's just like, oh, Batgirl, Batgirl. He's just like reading Batgirl 24-7. Yeah. And it's like, nailed it. The adult baby. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah, it's yeah. so fucking perfect. Yeah, you know what Alan Moore said about that? You know, you, you, you first go baby and then you go fascist from the comic books. That's, That's what right. It is. It's yeah. the infantilism that opens the door for fascism. That's right. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, well, I'll tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? They crown them, but they aren't who we thought they were. And we let them on the hot. That's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire. Hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of the Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts. Andrew Stasulis is my name, and I am joined here tonight with Eric Marsh and Ryan Saunders. For those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us picks a topic for the week and the other two hosts are challenged with bringing films to the table that meet the topic, address the topic, Rub shoulders with the topic. We've had it all. We love it all. It was my turn to pick this week, the topic, that is. And uh, I think, you know, as I mentioned last week at the end of our episode, when we sort of introduce, you know, the the the, the, the next week's topic, that, uh, you know, if you look around in the world today, I think that there's a lot of um, unease. You know, I find that uh, we're, we're, we're in an era where, once again, conspiracy theorists are, are running rampant out there. And, and indeed, I think there is a lot to be um, nervous about, uneasy about, when you look at the, the state of affairs in the world and what our government seems to be doing for us. So, I thought we could lean into that feeling a little bit. So the topic this week is paranoia, paranoid park. That's where we are going to be camping <laughs> this week. So I asked the boys to bring me films that deal with this issue. And that's exactly what we got. I was certainly paranoid that maybe we were going to get something that wasn't <laughs> dealing with the topic. But... You know, it was very misplaced sense of, of paranoia because the boys, they programmed us a, an excellent double feature depicting that, that sense of doom and dread and hysteria. So, without further ado, we should bring the films out. Marsh, you had the earlier of the two, so why don't you tell us what you brought everyone this week? Sure. Well, the more I thought about it, the more I became very overwhelmed because I think I think it's very clear that paranoia is one of the great themes of the cinema. And, you know, I think we, we live in a particularly paranoid age. But then I was thinking about it and I was thinking, 
man, like the whole 20th century was pretty paranoid. Yeah, when have we not? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and and then I just started thinking of all these all these great films and filmmakers, Fritz Lang, Orson Welles, you know, like who've dealt with these kinds of paranoia. And there's so many different kinds of paranoia. And I was just like freaking out because some of my favorite films are are very paranoid films. I generally uh, like that. In, in a movie, right? That sense of mystery and the sense that there are larger forces, you know, out of our control that are perhaps manipulating things, you know? And so uh, instead of picking, uh, you know, any of those classics that I, that I love, uh, one particular film caught my eye because uh, it seemed to have a, a different approach to this topic. Uh, and sort of researching, uh, you know, I found out that this film had a very unique sort of formal take on, I guess, a, a paranoid thriller or something like that. Of course, I'll explain it now. That film is Dossier 51 from 1978, a French film directed by Michel Deville, and it is uh, an adaptation of a novel by Gilles Perrault, and they work together, Deville and Perrault work together on the script adapting this book, which is all sort of surveillance ephemera. It's an entire novel of reports and faxes and like, you know, surveillance notes on a particular subject. And so seeing that that was the form of the novel, DeVille decided to bring that form to the screen. So ultimately what we experience as a viewer is from the perspective of a surveillance team conducting an investigation on a sort of obscure diplomat in France. And uh, <laughs> you never really learn exactly who or what the surveillance apparatus we are a part of as the viewer is or where it comes from, but we certainly learn a lot about our subject. And we basically see from uh, start to tragic conclusion uh, the results of this investigation that takes many forms of spying and surveillance, and we go through them all. And most of the movie is in this uh, sort of mobile point of view perspective that is shifting throughout the uh, surveillance agents or cameras or, or whatever uh, in this film. So it has a very unique form. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. I, I hadn't seen it. And I was wondering like, well, if it's from the perspective of the surveillance team, like, is it really going to be a paranoid film? And I think it, it is for, for many reasons, uh, especially the sort of just like chilling, cold depiction of the surveillance apparatus. I do want to give you all a little uh, dossier on Michel Deville. This is a director I was not really familiar with, but he he's sort of contemporaneous to the new wave, but worked more in a studio context. But he was certainly appreciated critically uh, throughout those years. And I found it very funny uh, that we we're watching this film when I started to read to read about this guy, and I want to read you uh, 
in my dossier what Andrew Saris said about Michelle DeVille in 1967. He said, Benjamin confirms DeVille's early promise as the French Lubitsch. And if DeVille should happen to be underrated by Americans, well, so was Lubitsch. Directors who make difficult things look easy are seldom appreciated adequately. And I'm thinking, wow, we watched his like serious art house surveillance movie. Uh, and he's apparently the French Lubitsch. Who knew? So uh, I think, yeah, yeah. So a lot to a lot to explore uh, there. But I did see, you know, some people sort of comparing him to Romare to Brisson, That he was sort of like a formally exacting and rigorous filmmaker, but he worked in a more uh, popular mode. And in fact, very famously, in Brisson's film Une Femme du. Douce? Douce? A character watches Benjamin, the DeVille film, in a Brisson film. So oh. um, anyway, he, he was around then. He, he made a shitload of films, and uh, he died uh, this February mm. after a, a very, very long life and many, many films. But uh, yeah, uh, that's that's the dossier on Dossier 51. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Marsh. We will be picking that dossier apart tonight. Ryan, what about you? What did you bring the listeners this week? I had a few ideas that came to mind right away. And then, as is often the case, I started getting paranoid myself about my pick and what I should be picking and what people might be thinking based off what I pick. And that was partially because when I had some picks in mind, Marsh did point out something I hadn't considered, which is, uh, it was a deciding factor in what I went with, which was trying to avoid stuff from the sixties and seventies. Cause it feels a little obvious. And I was like, mm, that's true. Because of course, what's the first thing you think of? You think paranoid cinema, you think the sixties and seventies. So I kind of took it as a challenge just for myself to broaden my horizons a little bit and look for something potentially even a bit more contemporary. And where I ended up landing is just about as contemporary as it gets. I got a film, ladies and gentlemen, hot off the presses. This is a film that has been released on home video uh, in a few parts of the world, but um, you can still check it out in theaters here in the States. And boy, oh boy, let me say, run, don't walk to, to check out this, this movie. I was quite tickled by it uh, in many, many ways. Um, and boy, oh boy, is it a doomed, soaked, paranoid nightmare. The film that I went with is the 2022 film directed by Albert Sarah, Pacifiction, the full title being Pacifiction, Torment on the Islands. This is a international co-production of France, Spain, Portugal, and Germany, but it's shot on the island of Tahiti in French Polynesia. The film tells a very loose story of the high commissioner Deroulet of, or Deroulet, how would you guys say it? De, I forgot. Deroulet. Deroulet. Of the high commissioner. I was of calling French him the commish in my notes. The commish. <laughs> but I was also thinking, you know, I don't know if the translation works in French, but to me, the name is a play on high roller. I just kept thinking high roller, you know? I was like... thinking about that too, actually. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Right. So we got our high roller here, Commissioner Desroulets, and he, very early in the film, gets word when speaking with some locals that there is potentially some plan to reignite nuclear testing 
in the ocean near the islands. And this sends him on a paranoid odyssey full of suspicion, backwards glances, and perplexing happenstances throughout the island of Tahiti. All the while, the film is, at first at times, I thought, like, is this going to be, like, Clue? Because it, it sort of features all these characters, like the Admiral right who almost feel symbolic uh and they all are fitting a part of this big puzzle and yet this puzzle is somewhat formless and it's elusive and because of that it evokes this sense of paranoia i, I was really excited when i when i had learned that the film did have this nuclear paranoia to it um it's something i'm very interested in and is something i feel myself as a human being on this planet nuclear paranoia. Uh, I'm a student of old Tommy Pinecone, Mr. Pynchon. I love his work, and this film definitely rang a lot of those bells for me, uh, which was which was quite a treat. And it's there's something about this film in terms of paranoia more broadly, I just want to say, which is why you know I wanted to highlight it, uh, is it reminded me a lot of Cormac McCarthy's most recent novel, The Passenger, <coughs> which has a, a, a central conceit to it. When diving, they find an airplane. It's a crashed airplane underwater. One passenger is missing. Throughout the book, you are worrying, you know, where is this passenger? Where could it go? But it's pretty clear, right? In a great paranoid work of art, it's not that you should worry about the answer, but instead that you should just be worrying about it. And that's what I think this film does so well. There is this fear that something, you know, nuclear testing may resume. There's Marines appearing on the island. The Portuguese representative have his, has his passport stolen at his hotel. That mysteriously disappears. It's not necessarily that you need to worry about, like, this isn't a film with this dramatic propulsion of, oh, where's this going to end up? But you should be worrying through its two hour and 45 minute runtime. Uh, it is a colorful, film but boy oh boy its emotions are soaked in doom being lost in the nightclub of contemporary politics as they say in it uh so i'm very excited to talk about it i think it's a fascinating film and that is albert sarah's pacifiction from 2022 thank you ryan um you know it it just occurs to me as well that you know listening to your introduction to the film um that you know, in reflecting on both of the films as these like works of, of paranoia, that in this particular case with pacifiction, um, as you mentioned, like there is this kind of central concern that, you know, is it looms very large of this nuclear testing. Mm -hmm. But I actually think that through the film, his like, you know, a, as a sort of like figure of paranoia, the, 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 the portrait of him, it isn't even necessarily about the nuclear testing, right? Exactly. That it's, that it's about nuclear testing for him. Uh, it, it seems more that he's, he's paranoid that he didn't, that he wasn't necessarily informed about it by the French officials themselves. As he points out many times throughout the film, you know, he is a representative of the state, you know? So it's it's actually like, I think his, his paranoia becomes so much more dispersed. Right. And therefore as you describe, kind of formless, like, because yes, there is this one target of like the nuclear testing, 
but he's not necessarily so wrapped up in like this from like a moralistic standpoint. <laughs> not at all. Right? It's almost <laughs> that, and I think he even says early on that it's like, are these guys trying to undercut me? Are they trying to make me look bad? Are they are, are people coming after my job? Like, is that what this means, you know? So he does start to spiral outwards. <laughs> And this nuclear testing is is sort of like one component of it. Yeah, you know? I yeah, I want to quickly say the the heart of this film is that line of dialogue that you're referencing when he says, "I think this is a grand scheme to weaken me, but I'm also not that important." That's how he qualifies <laughs> it, and that's what he's trying to figure out. So I I totally agree. There are people in this film that are concerned about the potential you know, resuming of nuclear testing as a moral issue. But yes, that is why this figure is so fascinating because he's both symbolic of the state and then also a person who is obsessed with thinking that something nuclear, something this grand could be designed to undercut himself. And like that (laughs) sense of paranoia is so fascinating. Well, and you know, in a sense, it connects it then very strongly to Dossier 51, which makes very clear that the target in the film, uh, Dominique Ophal, who is like the character in uh, Pacifiction, just this diplomat that theoretically doesn't matter. And yet we see all the expense that goes into the potential manipulation of this obscure diplomat. So I'm thinking, watching Pacifiction, when he says that line, I'm like, and buddy, you should be worried, you know, because there are forces outside of your control who have the bankroll and the technology to do that, you know? So, like, you know, like, Dossier 51 just confirmed to me that, like, He's right to be paranoid <laughs> that it is yeah. that it is that. And you're right, Andy. It is about for him, sort of his his role, his you know, uh his his power. His even status. Though, yeah, yeah, it's about his status, right? He admits his powerlessness, but I also, you know, thought of like Zama, you know, in terms of like, oh, here's just like this colonial asshole wasting away. But I mean, he obviously like likes his life, I think, at least until it all starts to sort of unravel here. You can tell that he loves, you know, being this sort of player who kind of, you know, he drives around in a Mercedes, you know, Mm -hmm. like. He loves living the high life in Tahiti. It's beautiful there. And I think, you know, if it wasn't clear in our intros, that's, that's certainly like the first big big, um, you know, difference in these two films and how they approach like the subject matter, you know, in the case of, uh, pacifiction as, as we've already sort of mentioned, like this film is, is in its, you know, vision of paranoia. We are firmly rooted in the perspective of, for the most part, uh, one man, this central mm-hmm. figure, De Rollet, the the high commissioner, the high roller of of Tahiti. So what we are are witnessing, we're witnessing through his limited view of what is potentially a yes grand scheme. But in Marsh's film, what's so fascinating is that we are in the complete opposite end of that sort of visual spectrum or that that privilege of of information, right? Derolet, like we are as blind as he is to what potentially is spiraling around him. 
But Le Dossier 51, like we never get into this man's perspective of what's happening. We are entirely external to him and and how he is sort of experiencing things, these things. We are entirely rooted in this elaborate apparatus that Marsh has described. And maybe we, we could describe it even a little more because I was totally, uh, I didn't read anything about the film. And so I was totally unprepared oh, wow. for its, for its construction. You know, and I think even if you go and read, just read a description of the film, it's not going to help you because I mean, it is, almost like an experimental film in in how it is conceived. Yeah, I mean, it's Peep Show for people who are familiar with Peep Show. When I told Molly that the theme this week was paranoia, the first thing she did was she sang the song, you know, paranoia, paranoia, because that's what we would always sing when we were watching Peep Show. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, that's, this film so often is like doing the, the literal peep show design and tricks very, very well. And that's what was something that was like tickling me for the front half. Cause I actually, I found the front chunk of this movie very confusing because it is so rapid and there's so much information and you're not often the voices you're hearing of all these people who are doing the surveillance. You don't really have faces to attach with so yeah, many of them. They're, they're, they're almost all disembodied. directive de Jupiter, je cite... La plus grande prudence est prescrite dans les opérations concernant la France. Là, vous tombez mal. Non, ici vous-même. C'est daté du... 17 octobre. Il y a trois jours. Et ça vient de... Jupiter. Sous prétexte de... Etc. est en train de devenir le fer de lance économique de l'Europe des neufs dans le tiers-monde. 800 milliards de dollars de contrats raflés en un an sous notre nez. Nous ne... Vous commencez à saisir. Jupiter veut pénétrer l'Odins. Le moyen recruter un de ses membres. Jusqu'à présent, nous avons échoué. Un petit nouveau se présente. Une chance inespérée, ce sera lui, 51. Il nous faut 51. Right. So keeping track of things is so difficult, and especially since the film is both the surveillance of set-up cameras and then also photographs that have been taken. That, plus, it's also sometimes literally eyes. The camera yeah. is the perspective of a human being in a room. Yeah, we get first person from like, like agent agent view or whatever. Yeah, yeah. first person <laughs> views of, of many situations. I actually did read that Deville at a certain point called this an anti James Bond film. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> not that it's against James Bond, but it's the opposite of James sure. Bond because he very specifically said like. If I have these agents as characters, then I have to start to exp- like explain them and say like they're this, you know, like, and that's not what the movie's about. Yeah, right? th- this so, this like, this would be like a James Bond film if we never left like MI6 headquarters, essentially. Right, right. right? Yeah. Like if Bond goes off to do his thing, but we're then just hanging out with like M and Q for the entire movie. Absolutely. I will say, as I've gotten older, you know, I was a huge Bond super fan in my youth as as reference to our many <laughs> Bond alerts, uh, of which there is one in Passive Fiction, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing I feel like I've found about Bond films uh, as I've gotten older that I feel like they're missing is a sense of paranoia. You know, I feel like most Bond films aren't nearly as paranoid as they should be. I think they're oh. making them way better. 
Well, but that's the essence of Bond. He's calm, cool, and collected. Sure. You know? that sure. He never loses it, right? That's true. Which would be, though, since we're on the subject, <laughs> which, which would you say is the most paranoid, paranoid of the Bond films? Well, probably one of the more recent ones, like Spectre. When it's the like the new organization that Bond can't quite tell if they're pulling strings even in MI6, that's probably the closest they've come to being like really paranoid. In terms of the OG ones, though, boy, I don't know. The, the, maybe Moonraker just for the hell of saying it, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, I think that the prop, I mean, probably the essence of like, I think what would separate, you know, a thriller from a movie that I would describe as like paranoid is, mm-hmm. is a sense of, you know, the audience being like, you know, seeing the, the scheme or seeing the bad guy actually at work. Right. So like Bond, we, we get introduced to the villains. We know that they're doing all this. So, you know, the, the, the villain will painstakingly explain their conspiracy and show you all the inner workings of it while Bond is like strapped to a table or something. So so there isn't this sense that, oh, well, it's it's all in Bond's head. Maybe he's wrong about this one. Right. There's, it's so assured. And I think the essence of what I would describe as like sort of paranoid films it's that there should be a question uh, certainly for like the character, but, but also for the audience of like, to me, like a truly paranoid film is, is when we are also in doubt, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that we aren't necessarily 100% sure that this is taking place or going on or that the rest of the world is certainly not sure in that same sense. And that's why I love passive fiction so much. Uh, for so many reasons, but in terms of evoking that sense of paranoia, I think having such a loose narrative just does wonders for the vibe that it's trying to get across. Because with a narrative so slippery and with so many details that seem like they might be contradicting each other or that we're not nearly getting the full picture of, it's that uncertainty that is so appetizing while watching it. I was so enthralled and so immersed in every moment because I was just thinking, I was suspicious. I was suspicious of the narrative itself. I was like, what are we looking at here, you know? I think there's even elements in Pacifiction where I started to doubt like the the world itself, you know, that this was taking place. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are at times moments where it really does seem to drift into something that becomes almost, you know, um, so expressionistic, so surreal that I doubted the reality. I, I started to question, like, had we gone so far in his head that we were now seeing his his fantasia of, again, this sort of grand scheme. But I guess, you know, going back to what we were sort of talking about in 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 relation to Le Dossier 51, where again, like we see the apparatus, we see all this going on. I think for me, that sense of paranoid doubt, um, which isn't, you know, in question of like whether or not this guy is being surveilled. No, it's very clear. Again, I think it's as you put it in your intro, Marsh, we don't really know why any of this is really taking place other than the fact that they want to surveil this guy, right? There isn't a clear sense of, you know, what this guy has even done to 
deserve this. And again, I, I think that the construction of the film makes you paranoid because it is, as you described, Ryan, like confusing and unmoored and we don't know who we're seeing. We don't know who these people are. We don't understand their motivations. Like there is this constant sense of like, why is any of this happening? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And I'll, I, I can try and lay out some, some facts here for us, <laughs> for the dossier. So the, the surveillance o- organization that we're following is called Mars. And then the agents all have different, you know, code names like Minerva, Hades, Venus, uh, and, and all this kind of nonsense, and Jupiter, right? And and what ultimately is sort of going on here that's very vaguely laid out very quickly with lots of acronyms is that this guy, Ophal, has been appointed to Odin's which is the Organization for the Development of North-South Exchange, which they say at the beginning is becoming, quote, an economic spearhead of Western Europe in the Third World. And ultimately, I guess what this, this just implies is that you know, and we learn this, that this is not a French intelligence operation because they are at a certain point paranoid about interference from the French intelligence yeah. in some of their operations. Uh, but I think it's, again, alluding to, yes, who is this? Is this the United States? Is this China? Is this whoever, right? It's it's not French. It's someone else. And they are trying to make inroads in, in Africa or whatever. But I think that, like... Ultimately, what's so chilling is that it's not that this guy has done anything wrong. They're looking for anything that can be used to manipulate him, right? Uh, and and sort of infiltrate Odin's, infiltrate uh, this organization or, or whatever. But again, it, it's super vague, and we have no idea really what's going on uh, half the time. But I think what's interesting, too, is that, like, whereas Pacifiction is this very, like, island time you know sort of movie where it's just like very loose you know this film the more i was thinking about it we've talked about this on on the pod before but this to me is kind of like a a thrice told tale it's kind of got this like structural circle back because again with so much of this like intelligence stuff it's like okay well we we did all this what are the conclusions uh Hmm. Nah, these aren't these aren't good conclusions. What if we looked at it a different way? Mm-hmm. And that's again ultimately what happens. We see, you know, one look at this guy, and then we see a deeper and different look at this guy, and then we see the psychological look at this guy, and we're sort of like learning new stuff every time. Perhaps they're constantly shifting their angle yes. of penetration into his life. Yes. And when they meet a dead end, they suddenly shift. They, they and we will be informed of this, right? The, because there's, there's this grand look into him, but <laughs> I think as, as you're trying to describe, we're also going to get treated to several mini operations throughout <laughs> the film. And I, I was delighted by all the various like missions that this, this private intelligence firm was, was unleashing that some which meet with success and, and quite a few that, that meet with failure in, in sort of amusing ways <laughs> throughout the film. Dude, operation dead leaves. I mean, 
mean, come on. I think my I think the one that I liked the most was Operation. Oh, I got to look at my notes again here. Operation. Well, the last one, Operation Hyman, but we'll talk about. Well, that. yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I forget which one it is, but it's the one where. Oh, Operation Jumping, where they they try to get to his wife because we we quickly discover very early on in the film that that this this Ophol guy uh, his wife is having an affair. So that's like one of their initial points of entry is sort of can we get here because he is by all appearances a very loyal husband. There's no question about that. You know that that he has a mistress, but the wife does take other lovers. So at a certain point, they even try to like send one of their agents in to seduce her. There's there's actually a few honeypots in in the movie, but Operation Jumping was hilarious to me because it was a total failure. And the way it's presented to us is they're trying to select the right agent to go after to go after his wife to seduce his wife to woo his wife all we're looking at is like some somebody's hands shuffling through agent cards but they're all like these like 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 Maplethorpe-esque like nudes yeah. of all these well-hung naked men. Yeah, they look like 70s porn stars or something. Oh my God, dude, I couldn't believe it. And I was just cracking up because then they were like, okay, you know, we get like script on the screen. You know, we're looking for certain characteristics. We need pronounced masculinity, sadistic possibilities, strong horsemanship, and a familiarity with high society etiquette. So they're trying to find that but they're also just looking at like naked pictures of dudes like dude i was just cracking up at operation <laughs> jumping which i buried the lead on was a total failure because he really blew it with uh with uh, Ophel's wife you know? yeah yeah and i mean maybe this is just getting so far ahead of ourselves but i feel like i can't talk about dossier 51 without like getting this out in the open and w- w- when that scene happened I again I was very confused at many points in this film and I was like laughing about this scene with Molly and because she watched the first half of it with me and I said and I said to her I'm like okay wait so do they already have they already like figured out that he's that he's like interested in men and that's why they're picking out all of these studs is this like to get him and she's like no it's for the wife what are you talking about mm-hmm. like well he's he's gay like that the film is already giving us all of these signs. I thought that was the idea. And then the film, like eventually that's where the film ends up and that becomes like this big reveal. Um, that I was so I just found it so perplexing. <laughs> because the film is to me it felt like very clear how the film is like cueing us in on that and then i thought it was going to be about this grander thing and then i was so fascinated when we had like a 20 minute sequence of the movie explaining to us like we figured it out he's gay how that like that was as far as they were taking it and that's why i thought it was so interesting as a paranoid experience thinking about you know what are they investigating what are they actually doing besides just trying to discredit him? And it's like, look how incompetent they are. It took them this long to like reach these conclusions. Well, I, I think like Marsh was kind of already like alluding to this or, or, you know, just flat out basically said it, um, you know, they don't have anything on this guy. You know, right. He hasn't done anything wrong. Like this whole, uh, this whole grand 
you know, plan that they have is is to find something. And and not even just to find something. I mean, they are literally fabricating things. They're right. sending agents in to manipulate this man, his wife, the people around him. They're invading his home. They're breaking in. I mean, like they are planting things. They're 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 doing all this stuff, you know? So it isn't even like this whole like, man, is this guy a red or or what? Like I mean, there is that question to a certain extent, but that's not even really what they're ultimately after. That isn't their their actual right. design here. Yeah, and that is one thing that, that really struck me is that element of their manipulation and creation of not just reality, but new realities, which, uh, yes, Ryan, uh, when they started doing the psychological explanation, I thought the film was being ironic. Me too. Uh, but the film is not being ironic. Now, what's interesting to me about that is I have my own conspiracy theory now about this movie, which is, again, that is all pure conjecture. Mm -hmm. Again, they have they have nothing. Right. And they go, we've dug through this guy's whole life. Right. Uh, and they've identified, you know, a way to emotionally manipulate him through his mm -hmm. past, which we can talk about if we want uh, very heavy Holocaust stuff. But like, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, ultimately they do like Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal. Yeah. They fucking get these guys and they're going to, you know, not they're going to break the news to him that his real father, you know, died in a concentration camp. His whole life is a lie. And then they're going to try and initiate gay sex with him. And they do all these like we see all these rehearsals. I mean, it's incredible stuff. And the direction that like is being given in those scenes. I mean, it's it's incredible. But. They're creating this, yes. right? So, so that to me is what ultimately is this, like what makes it this great paranoid film is the, the creation of a new reality by intelligence agencies. Yeah. And that again is like, not to, not to go there, but when you think about Epstein, all that shit, like trafficking, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's all just like glo the global honeypot, you yeah. know, like mm -hmm. it, it's all this fucking like, Penetration points, incriminating evidence, setups, luring people into situations in which they're compromised. Again, I mean, it's like today, fucking Disney has, an, you know, in, an intelligence unit oh, in yeah. their corporation. <laughs> Every corporation does, yeah. right? So you go again in terms of like manipula <laughs> manipulating reality, creating new realities uh, through the surveillance apparatus is fucking insane. Yeah. They come up with very little. Uh, evidence throughout the film, yeah. but they but they sure do make a lot of evidence. Yes, yes. I mean the the that's why I agree with you, Marsh. Because like <clears throat> I think, of course, the surface, you know, and I'm not I'm not saying this to 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 you know belittle the way you've described it because that's that's exactly what we do see. But I ended up walking away with a very similar kind of like, but like. Why do I believe these people? Right. I don't believe. I don't, I don't, yes, I don't sure. believe yeah. them. You know, like I see that. You know, spoiler alert. Yes, that they have like destroyed this man's life, but that's <laughs> that's only what I saw. Like I saw a loving father who was in a a, a marriage and and wasn't really into sex, and and they twisted and 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 
and schemed and lied and stole things. And at one point, even like set up his poor fucking au pair with a fake boyfriend and tried to get him to impregnate her to like really cement the relation. I mean, it's like everything that they did was was like false and wrong and fake and a lie. So the ultimate conclusion that they they deliver in their report to me is like like bullshit. Like it's all it's all bullshit. Sure. You know? No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean that I also felt the same way marsh when that scene happened i couldn't tell like is this ironic i can't believe how serious this is and how long it goes on for this full psychological evaluation and i think it's totally valid to read it as such as they've decided on their angle and are fully committed to having an artificial reality that fits every little piece of evidence that they found and that they created the verity is Et c'est normal qu'ils s'en fichent, puisque 51, nous venons, je crois, de vous le démontrer, est un homosexuel refoulé. Très bien, c'est assez convaincant. Mais alors Alors quoi La prise sous contrôle. Well, but also, if you go into that scene, you know, where there is this moment where, you know, they have several experts delivering their, their psychological profiling, I think there is, if you wanted to find some irony in there, at least in the way it's being depicted, um, I noticed, you know, two things. Number one, that that the men, you know, who are taking part in this, I mean, they are really like they're really getting into the sexual aspect of it like they're yeah they're really almost to the point where seemingly like kind of turned on by this prospect and as marsh said like they're they're almost like shooting a porn at one point with these two agents that they're rehearsing with and and you know they're like touching about they're, they're talking about when you touch him and how you touch him but also going into the back to the boardroom where they're like delivering the psychological profile, like the two men who are, who are most like adamant about his latent homosexuality that they're, they're, they're profiling with. If you notice, they are both, um, you know, if you want to get very Freudian about it, they are both like sucking on very phallic objects. One <laughs> of the guy has a pipe that he is just, you know, just going to town on. And the other guy, like at a certain point, he takes like his pen and he puts it in his mouth and he's just sucking on his pen. Like, so to me, I, I don't think that that is, you know, coincidental. I think that maybe there is something, something to that, that again, might be, you know, for us, um, ironic to see these these guys who might also be kind of struggling with their own whatever fantasies in this particular situation, their own projections onto this man. Because that's, again, what all of these things are. They are like literal and figurative projections. Yeah. Look how paranoid the film is making us. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I, 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 I could have sworn, you know, there's a, there's like a joke with the main sort of agent guy, the bigger guy. And he's like, well, uh, you know, it comes from a powerfully neurotic family, but that doesn't mean, uh, you know, you're, you're gay. I mean, I come from a powerful neurotic family yeah, and he like says yeah. it like dead in earnest. And I was like, Oh, this is hilarious! But I do think Deville is 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 honestly playing it straight. But whatever, I'm going to read into 
into sure. it however I want, which is that, yes, as I mean, Andy they said. they introduced Freud. Dude. Yes. You know, they, they, did. they, they, they really pulled the cat did. out of the bag in that one. But you're right. They've identified, yes, this, this latent homosexuality, right, uh, that is completely dormant, that he is even perhaps unaware of. And if they had left him alone to live his life, may never have manifested, right? And again, that to me is where the paranoia truly begins. Like, by, by the time the movie ends, like, I was, like, fully into, into the paranoid mode. Right. And it really primed me for, for pacifiction, again, to get, to get back to that, Ryan, because, like, like you said, it's like, he's just this nobody, really, you know? And it's ultimately, yeah, that tale of, like, this guy realizing that he, too, is, is just this powerless sort of stooge, you know, just like O'Fall, yeah. you know? But he is, you know, and again, I think that's where it, 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 you know, we've, we've kind of described his paranoia like comes from is that he does see himself until this happens as this almost like, you know, king-like figure on the island. He's very proud of of mm-hmm. what he sees as his great ability to 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 sort of work with everyone. The 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 first chunk of the film really does kind of establish him as this this communicator, this facilitator, this guy who's able to 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 bring everybody to the table and get everybody to come to some sort of solution, even if he is himself sort of always playing both sides against the middle to keep his status cemented, to keep his place, right? Because I think that's yeah. that's the sort of like colonial or post-colonial satire and critique of his character is yeah. that he has to justify his presence in every situation that he has to sort of like be like everyone needs me like the the only way anything gets done around here is because of me and because of my presence and there's like you know big things we see him get involved with such as this this casino segregation issue that that uh develops very early on in the film right they're they're building a casino on the island but but like religious leaders the 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 white catholics have basically said the the like local parishioners the white parishioners don't want any of the locals participating in the casino for moral reasons but of course being on an island like tahiti there's not a lot to do and that's making the locals extremely upset that they would be cut out from such activities (laughs) and i feel like it's so interesting thinking about that first chunk of the film being dedicated to derolais you know, fancying himself like this benevolent king, someone who is this great communicator because he is so committed to being what he perceives as a realist. When there are people like sitting, when he's having like a round table conversation with the locals who are really impassioned and sharing their concerns, his his replies are always framed as this like, okay, I understand what you're saying and I want to say I'm on your side. Here are some practical realities I'm going to have to go up against when trying to advocate for you. Here are things that will like get in the way and here's how I'm going to try and approach it. And that's why I think it's so interesting how you had talked about, Andy, as the film goes on, you had started to doubt the reality of a lot of the scenes we were seeing because the film is so deeply subjective that there is never a scene without the high commissioner. 
everything, if I remember correctly, I can't think of a single scene that doesn't feature him in the room. It is exclusively uh, his subjective perspective on this film. So being someone who fancies himself a realist, I do agree that once the film starts going into territory that seems to be actively dealing with artifice, even to the point of referencing other art, because Sarah's clearly doing some Lynchian stuff, um, like very explicitly so, they almost feel like a little brief homage with some of the dances. But in those moments, you do wonder someone who has fancied himself a realist as this benevolent communicator for the island and its you know its concerns now that he's getting paranoid and his sense of reality is being upended and it seems as though there are alternate realities being created exclusively to undermine him then you have to wonder if you can even trust what we're looking at throughout the film and then conversely right with le dossier i don't think there's ever a moment when the person under investigation is seen speaking on screen I think the only time we yeah. ever hear his voice is off screen, right? Yeah, not a not a once. Yeah, so that yeah, to me, I yeah, I just totally agree. It's like such a fascinating back and forth of subjective reality with both films. Yeah, I mean, like he, I would even say more than uh, I think the word that I would use is is he sees himself as like the the ultimate pragmatist. Sure, because there you go. yeah, he isn't really on anyone particular side right mm -hmm. that that he's often going from one party to the next and sort of telling them what they want to hear and and trying to make little compromises along the way um and i i really like a lot of the way he sort of would communicate with people because you know even in that like casino thing you know where as you described like the locals are are very upset about it he then also kind of flips it on them and is like well well, who would really want to go hang out in a casino anyway? You know, all you do is lose your money, right? You know, he's got this kind of dismissive yeah. air where, you know, even when he is saying things like, yeah, I'm on your side, I'm on your side, but there's always a but that he's mm -hmm. presenting, you know? And and he'll sit there and he'll agree and agree and agree. And then in the very next scene, we'll see him like talking to the other side and kind of being like, look, I'm on your side, you know? Like, I'm with you. Even in this case where he then goes to the the Catholic preacher and he's like, look, I, I, I'm with you. I think, you know, religion's great and everything like that. But like, aren't you kind of providing the same thing? You know, like, isn't this just <laughs> another kind of form of entertainment? And don't you also take people's money for their, their, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you're selling them, you know, the same kind of thrill or kick. You know, even like, again, with the, the, the army, you know, on the one hand, he's sort of like, yeah, no, you know, nuclear testing's bad. But then we've got scenes where he's like talking to some of these like local, you know, not local, but he's talking to some of the army guys. I mean, he's trying to communicate with this admiral directly. And he's he's also kind of trying to nudge himself in there of being like, well, of course I know about the nuclear testing, you know? Like, he's trying to, like, get them to, to sort of, like, 
let him in on what they haven't let him in on. I mean, it's just, again, everything has to sort of be rooted to him. And, and again, that like subjectivity of being like, well, I don't actually give a shit either way. I just want to be seen as the, the, the playmaker, <laughs> you know, I want to be seen yeah. as the guy that, that makes the compromise and everyone's like, well, it was him. It was Deroulet who made this possible and made everyone happy. It was the introduction of the Admiral when I realized that this was going to be a new favorite film of mine, uh, because that guy, oh my god, he, oh, yeah, I was just losing it anytime we had a scene with the Admiral. He's like a, so, a relatively short man compared to some of the big people in this movie, and he's just like always wearing his Admiral outfit. And I think it's probably the first scene with him. He's like sitting with these boys in the nightclub, and he's asking them, you know, do you do drugs? And he's like, I do yeah. drugs, but I only do drugs ashore. I don't dare <laughs> do drugs out on the sea. But it's because he's he's uncomfortable on the shore. He feels at odds with the land. He like he only feels safe and secure. And in his like <laughs> the effect that drugs give him on the shore <laughs> is something that the sea gives him naturally. That guy was what, so funny. The surveillance team from Dossier 51 would have had a field day with the Admiral oh. because <laughs> Uh, he was coming on to anything and everything that came into his his orbit. Just oh, yeah. this little horny man, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, truly. You know, for a while, yeah, and, and to your point, I like... I, you know, I like how long this film is. It lets you sort of get lost in it. And the first chunk, you know, just seeing him sort of operate in the day-to-day -day before, uh, you know, like the, the paranoia really takes over, I was thinking like, oh, yeah, this is like 21st century Donovan's Reef shit, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, sure. this guy thinks he's John Wayne. Like, hey, we can all get along on this island as long as, well, of course, I'm in charge, right. you know? Yeah. But, like, mm -hmm. yes, racial harmony, of course, as long as I'm in charge. And <clears throat> one thing I find very amusing is, you know, one of the major threads throughout the film is this, uh, this I guess, play or sort of performance that is being rehearsed and costumed and and we see all this like backstage stuff because it's like one of the things he does in his daily rounds is like go hang out with this production. Yeah. And again, like also kind of interject himself as like a director yes, and choreographer. He's like, yes, directing, mm -hmm. yeah. dude. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. He's like producing this play. I mean, like it's <laughs> it's all these things where he, you know, he sees himself as indispensable, but everyone's getting along fine without him or would seem to get along fine without him but he like sweeps in and just gives a couple like shitty notes and everyone's like oh all right you it know? did kind of like, seem like he made the play more racist right because he was sort of like you know more barbaric more violent yeah, you know yeah. like yeah he has a whole like aesthetic discussion about cockfighting and violence and their facial expressions you know what it was reminding me of you know what it actually at that particular point 
it was kind of also reminding me of of um, like killing of a Chinese bookie. Like yes. I kept seeing him as like Cosmo, this character who again it's all about pride and seeing himself as something so much bigger than he actually is and like his devotion to the show and putting on the performance the same way that Ben Gazar is concerned about you know what numbers going on on stage at the the crazy horse west and again I would also say you know thinking about it in those terms killing of a Chinese bookie is kind of a nice like paranoia film as well but again there's reasons to be paranoid but for him he's like most paranoid about the show the show must go on how's the crazy horse doing and again his status and how he's perceived by everyone but yeah i mean this is the same guy who in in another scene is like discussing like making a justification for genocide i mean like he has no moral compass at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, he goes through this whole thing where he's like, well, you could say that, you know, French civilization and genocide was, was a bad thing, but, but look what it built, you know, take us back to like, no, and the conversation that, uh, you know, the professor was having with the soldiers. Right. When right? Is, yeah. When is a loss a dub? Right. Yeah. And he's like, no, it's, when is an L a dub? Like that's, that's what he's saying. Right. Like, yeah, this was a dub for everyone. Look, we're getting a casino. I got the, the, the Catholic, priest to let the locals in right all this is good we got a surfing competition going on folks right yeah it almost felt like he was treating the genocide discussion as a pragmatist would which was an insane it reminded no it reminded me of the guy from uh we we, we will not go we'll go down in history as barbarians the rada judah film we yeah. did remember mm -hmm. the minister who yeah. also is making like yeah like genocide's not a big deal arguments yeah. or whatever. Because yeah. it seemed like de Rolaire's like perspective on it was like, well, it just depends on, you know, how you're looking at it. Everyone can find benefit in all of these things and all of these things that have just happened in general, but we just have to live with this. That sort of mm -hmm. seems to be his end goal of being a pragmatist. He's like, well, this is just what we have. And there's good, depending on how you, you know, approach it and look at it. This is just the reality of this place. We just need to move forward with it. He's not someone that's trying to disrupt a system. He's just oh, saying, no. this is just how things are. And yeah. this is the, the world system. we have to live yeah. in. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because there is a moment where, like, he is directly confronted by... A, a collection of like the local guys who are like, okay, we've got plans. Like we can really kick this off to, to protest the nuclear testing. I mean, we can get violent even. And that's like a moment where he's just like, no, 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 no. Like order and, and this order, and you may not like this order, but this is the order that we have and that we have to hold on to. Like I can't be the guy that's overseeing this, you know, the, the, again, not even like the fact that he's concerned about violence, but the fact that it's like, this could come back on me. I'm a representative of the state. Yeah. He keeps telling everybody, like, how would this make me look? Not even like who's going to die, but, but how is this going to make me look? And his strategy for solving that is just attempting to make them feel paranoid. When Matahi says, we're going to take to the streets and we're going to actually have action take place, he tells him, you're not in control of this situation. There are people pulling the strings, making this happen for you. As much as you think you have the support elsewhere, I'm concerned that you're being taken advantage of. So his strategy there, De Rolaire, is to make him paranoid, thinking that, <laughs> oh, there are systems outside of your control that are 
messing with your sense of reality. Yeah, and he doesn't realize he's talking about himself, you know, because right. he pitches himself at multiple points on those terms, a man of action, right? But again, he's telling other people like, well, you're not allowed to be men of action because I'm I'm the man. Yeah. I'm the man of action. I'm know? the guy that gets things done. And, <laughs> you know, Andy, you brought up Killing of a Chinese Bookie. You would not be surprised uh, in the Filmmaker Magazine interview with Sarah. He said he did watch it uh, in preparation. Uh, and then he says, like, it's it's really not that good. <laughs> Um, but then, he, but yes, he's like, yes, of course I watched it. You know, the doomed man in the white suit, you know, like, of course, uh, then he slags it, but he says he also watched Parallax View, Chinatown and Polanski's Ghost Rider just to like get in the mood. Uh -huh, you there know? you go. So, yeah. um, again, Portraits I think that, of paranoia. Yeah. I think he's, mm -hmm. he's certainly thinking about that, but of course, you know, I haven't seen any <laughs> Albert Serra movies. And it's just like the Michelle DeVille thing. It's like, this is the film that people say is, is most unlike his other movies, right? That like, mm -hmm. in terms of it being something mildly accessible, uh, right? That's not usually the case with his films, right? The, you know, he's got a film where Leud plays like a dying king mm -hmm. and that's it. That's all that it is, you know? Uh, really pushing like what a narrative is, right? And this one, of course, we can see has these sort of like the, the Pynchon-esque conspiracy mm -hmm. to guide us through it. But I mean, we should say this is, yes, Ryan said, it's a, it's a long movie and so much of it is, is, is nothing like not, I don't want to say nothing happening, but really stretching the limits of, of story. I mean, my fav one of my favorite, maybe my favorite scene in the movie is the surf sequence where uh Dirolet goes out to uh you know just a bunch of people hanging out watching surfers on these just absolutely massive tubes uh and it is funny you know to connect it back to what you guys were talking about he he like singles out the the best surfer and is like anything you need you know hit me mm -hmm. up hit me up trying to make himself you know somehow important <laughs> in this vast like tidal wave no one gives a shit about this guy they're there to yeah. watch Watch surfing, yeah. you know. I mean, he's even like, I'm gonna go out on a jet ski, you know. And he, he like, they're like, okay. And then they, they take him out on the jet ski. And there's like, in the background, we're seeing guys like facing death, like surfing on these waves. And he's sitting on the back of some other guy's jet ski. And like, when he comes back in, he's like exhilarating, like nothing you could ever imagine, you know, terrifying. <laughs> like I've never, you know, again, like. He's, he's always building himself up. In another moment like that that I was like laughing at that I thought was hilarious that that really gives you a sense of his character and, and what a buffoon he is in terms of how grand he sees himself is there's this like famous author who's come to visit, right? And and there's like this luncheon in her honor and, and he has to introduce her. And so in this big luncheon where all these people are here to see this author and potentially hear her speak, I guess, or read or something, he spends half of the introduction talking about himself yep. and, and the fact that he sees himself as a writer. He said, you may all have noticed I'm often scribbling in a notebook, you know? It's how I keep uh, my thoughts organized. But I guess I'd call myself a bit of an author, a bit of a writer. You know, it's just like, <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, he's he's just in, in the intro for the famous author. He spends all of it talking about himself. He's always got to put himself 
in there somehow. Right. Well, he thinks it's all about him because he's paranoid. He thinks it all kind of circles back on onto himself. I mean, when he's gazing out at the sea, I you know I really felt that when he had his little binoculars and he was looking out at the water. And oh he's, yeah. He sees he sees what I think is revealed as a boat, but in the wide shot, it really looks like a sub because he thinks like, oh my god, the subs are here, the nuclear missiles are here. And since I've been watching Peter Watkins' The Journey, I've actually <laughs> been doing that because there's like a huge portion of that film that revolves around the Bangor submarine facility which is less than 45 minutes away from where i live uh and i've been i've been having some eagle eyes i've been really kind of looking at the port i've been looking out there just in uh, case checking for tridents yeah. <laughs> yeah there have been these boats that uh now because there's this white train in Razan, where it's like that's the white train that's where all the nuclear missile heads it goes are on from and- the pentax facility in amarillo texas to bangle (laughs) (laughs) and now when i see these boats that have these big white containers i'm like oh my god those are full of nukes i mean that was even the first thing i thought when i started pacifiction and we see all those shipping containers you know that's like the first image is like the mountains of tahiti and then all these shipping containers and you're like ah shit (laughs) you know what's inside all of those you know well i think it is important though to talk about that sub thing for a second because it, it does play a major role in like both like yes his direct paranoia but but also our like sense of unease in the audience because in that first scene that you described where he kind of goes james bond with his high-tech you know mm. binoculars uh we do see a sub tower and then it's like he's like am i seeing what i think i'm seeing and then he uh-huh. sees another boat a smaller boat and he doesn't really understand what that boat is but then like later he goes to investigate it and the small boat is actually running sex workers out into the ocean so he now sees that yes i did see a sub and the, uh, i did see a small boat and the small boat is running right. women out to the sub and then there's another amazing shot later where again as his paranoia really starts to spiral he starts to constantly try to come up with ways where he can like investigate further and so he goes to take either a sightseeing tour or to simply go visit the mayor uh and he takes this basically like sightseeing plane up and he's looking out at the ocean with his binoculars again and you do have this amazing shot that takes you a little while to sort of like realize what you're actually seeing or what you think you're seeing where he's just looking at this empty ocean and and he holds that shot just long enough for mm-hmm. us to pretty surely think we see the outline of a submarine just underneath a big shadow. the surface of the yeah. water. I mean, amazing stuff. And again, that subjective perspective where, like, are we seeing this? I mean, he certainly thinks he's seeing this, but can we be sure? 
can we trust these images? Yeah, God, that scene's amazing because he he's explicitly says, like, I'm up here. You know, he tells the person in the plane, like, this is great. You get to get a bird's eye view of the island. You know, it helps you clear your head and, and make you feel less you know, significant. You feel more insignificant in realizing less things are important. You know, you yeah. can you know, step away from everything. And then he looks out the window feverishly looking for the submarine, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. exactly in contradiction with the reasons he says he's up there. So yeah, sub hunting. He's such a fucking liar, dude. He's so funny. And you know what's cool about his his you know, I think we I don't know if we've really described his like look in detail, mm. but like <laughs> yeah. you know, he is like the coolest guy on the island. You know, he's always either got the white suit on or the dark suit. Typically the white suit during the day, the dark suit at night. Sunglasses always. And the always. sunglasses are these blue tinted sunglasses are always on except for the moments when he desperately looks through his binoculars. Like those are the only times, yeah. day or night, he ever removes the shades is just to look through his fancy high-tech binoculars. And what a performance from Benoit Magimel, who uh, I know practiced being bourgeois scum in the early 2000s films of Claude Chabrol. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's in quite a few of those, you know, uh, working up that. So I like to think maybe there was... Uh, you know, some rehearsal element there, you know, I mean, he's had a good <laughs> sure. career, but you know, I've seen, I've seen him do a variation on this kind of thing, uh, before. And it really is, you know, I mean, I think if you can get into the performance, uh, you're coasting in this movie. Cause I mean the, vi you know, the images, what images, my God, uh, people say digital cinematography is bad folks, not in this film. No. Um, and yeah. I, I want to talk about a little bit what I read about how they made it, because I think it's it's fascinating, right? They shot the film uh, with three concurrently running Blackmagic pocket cams with 16 millimeter zoom lenses. So kind of like an Alt, like Altman style setups where you've got three different camera people positioned and just creating their own images and compositions, right? And he says he doesn't even look at the camera most of the time, <laughs> you know, when he's directing or whatever. And they recorded over 500 hours of footage in wow. 25 days, uh, which is an insane amount of footage. So the ratio in this movie is like nuts. The material that they shot for them to shape it into <laughs> into this thing. Yeah, I nearly mean, three hour film. I mean, yeah, yeah, like so wow. I, I just found that that approach sort of fascinating. And it certainly explains like the looseness of, of the narrative, but yet... There is a logic to it, to it, to its emotions, to its images, right? That that carry you through, and it is a striking movie. I mean, they're also manipulating the colors in most production, right? The whole movie is like orange and pink, uh, this just nuclear sunset aesthetic, and it's. I yeah. mean, it's amazing to look at. You know, it really yeah. is. It's oh, it's yeah. really stunning. Did you do you happen to know if that's also his? mode of approach for his other films like shooting endlessly like that yes also i should mention too majumel had an earpiece where he was fed uh fed lines that he didn't know like he mm. didn't he didn't have a script that's and awesome. of course a lot of the actors are non-professionals so like he's he's not doing that with them but with him, they had like the earpiece thing going on where he was just like radioing in 
things to say. And then you go, well, yeah, no kidding. They shot 500 hours, yeah, 540 right. hours of footage that, or whatever. That makes sense that he would do that with his other films too. Cause I also haven't seen any Albert Serra films, but my understanding is that his other films feel like art installations that have like snuck into to movie theaters. And I, I, I was just remembering the one time I came closest to watching an Albert Serra film was with me was with you when yeah. we Marsh and I finally decided like we're pulling the trigger like we're gonna watch it I think it was story story of my, of my life. death story of my story death. of my death story yeah. of my death and we were set we were dedicated we're like we have the energy let's do it we press play and then we were like oh shit this movie is like entirely lit by candles it's 2 p.m. in Chicago and the sun is like <laughs> blasting through. Yeah. Even through the blinds, window. like the movie was too dark to watch. So it was we like never watched it. God damn, dude. <laughs> so yeah, my only like memories of Albert Sarah images are the promotional stills and then like a totally washed out <laughs> opening image from that movie. I'm going to return to it soon, hopefully. And, you know, uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, Le Dossier 51 is an ugly movie and and it's entirely by design i mean it is you know for me when i really got on board with it was just kind of how how unsettling its look made me feel like how unsettled i felt by the look of the film because mm -hmm. there is no you know these aren't meant to be pretty pictures. These are meant to be surveillance yeah, shots. Functional. Right. And, and you know, all the first-person perspectives were, were also really sort of disturbing on a certain level because you don't normally see that deployed in a lot of films. And, and boy, they rely on that a lot in this. And again, you, you constantly find yourself wanting to just like whip your head around and be like, who is this? Who am yeah. I? Right. I mean, more than anything, <laughs> who am I? You know, I think like both films, you, you described like the Agent opening. Agent 747. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Agent 9000, right? I mean, like everyone sort of is just like a, a, a pig and gross and, and being preyed upon by the cameras of, of this movie. You know, and you described like the opening shot of, of, uh, pacifiction, which which again is is on a certain level this sort of thesis about you know post colonial French Polynesia, you know the the beautiful candy colored sunset and all the shipping containers. But man, mm -hmm. the opening of this film was I mean you want to talk about paranoia? Anytime you have a film opening on a computer monitor and a certainly like an old ass computer monitor from the late seventies, suddenly scrawling, clacking. Yeah, and then you know we move out from the, the the computer and we have a a room filled with all kinds of mechanical devices. You know, tape recorders, large ass seventies computers. I mean, just all this mechanical shit, as Marsh said, clacking away and clicking away way but what's very important is there are no humans at all in that room we just see these machines suddenly at work suddenly detailing like who is to be surveilled and not just that but there's a really important detail that also you know our first information the very first information we have is that this character who we are now going to spend a lot of time picking apart has just replaced someone else in that 
position. The computer tells us, like, this is the new appointed figure in this particular role, this department. He has just replaced someone else. And again, I think we've already buried the lead that this guy meets a very, like, bad ending as a result of this. But the closing shot is, once again, this computer now telling us, that he is out and a new person is stepping into the role as if, again, it's like these computers are just doing all this. They're running amok and the humans are really just the organic servo processors for the machines, the machines of modernity, the machines of the surveillance state. I will say, try as they might, you know, you mentioned it's an ugly film, uh, I still watch this movie that is actively trying to look ugly, and I couldn't help but think, good God, take me back to 1970s French film stock. Oh, yeah. It was the same thing I was thinking while watching those Jean-Paul Belmondo movies. I was like, God damn, this is like delightful to look at. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not saying it's an ugly film to insult the movie. I'm saying no, it's no, an ugly film because that's exactly what <laughs> yeah. it's trying to be. And it, again, it's, it's uh, you know, every 70s film is about the ugliness of 70s interior design. And that's, you know, this is another one for that Columbo canon of like, Jesus, look at the things people have in their homes or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, but that's why it's funny how you'd think this movie getting made today would be this collage of all these different digital mediums like ugly security camera footage maybe like nighttime photography small hidden cameras gopros all sorts of different posts exactly yeah live stream shit um and this one is trying to come up with all these different ways of utilizing all these analog tools they have like 35 millimeter slides and then like the film stock and then that also supposed to being eyes along with cameras at other points and it's still like convincing like you kind of can tell where you're at um in a given moment whether you are a human being's eyes or mechanical eyes yeah but i like marsh that you mentioned agent uh or subject 747 (laughs) which is like a certain like a very cruel joke that i think was a great way of characterizing the uh the people doing the surveilling (laughs) yeah Yeah. like this maid is so fat that they're calling her like a 747 jet and it's like this vivid is like like it was so funny to me that like that's the the person they decided to really like lamp well yeah french they get her daughters involved in the operation and they call one of them the vamp yeah Uh, they're like yeah still making fun of them and the other one is in a wheelchair and they call her the invalid yes (laughs) yeah Yeah. these are these are are, yeah these are bad people yeah that was the funniest scene in the movie when they go to her home and they're trying to see like how reliable of of an informer is agent 747 we've been paying her to do some surveilling herself and she's been getting suspiciously too many results for us and that's when they go in pretending to be an alternate source and realize her house is littered with brand new state-of-the-art kitchen appliances it's like the kitchen from point blank in there yeah and i was like hell yeah agent 747 Keep up the good work. Yeah, know? she had good a very Jerry Maguire attitude about the whole thing. But yeah. fuck I, you, pay me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so we yeah we see all that like informant network stuff. I mean, yeah, it really is uh, sort of all encompassing. Yeah, it's why it's it is a really. I mean, again, for the subject matter, paranoia. It is it is such a um, a, a perfect example of like you know. 
the the in, the the near like psychosis you can almost feel yourself like caught in because like everything basically implodes in this movie like the what is supposed to be like a very organized operation like is constantly like turning in on itself throughout the film like it isn't even necessarily just about this guy it's 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 just simply about intelligence and counterintelligence and surveillance and surveillance of surveillance you know it's like it's justifying its presence by turning inwards as well you know and again like you said marsh like there's this this part where they're they're suddenly freaking out about french counterintelligence that that's involved in actually trying to find political enemies of the french state and then they freak out you know because shit we can't be found out by them oh they found the bug now we got to get out of there now we got to move on to a new mission right i mean it's just like the surveillance state like distilled into a a a film that just makes you feel very unhappy and unsettled from like minute one to the very end. And they were wrong too about it being French uh, counterintelligence. It was actually just like a drunken party uh, <laughs> right. that, well, they, that, that they had. Yeah. You know? I like, mean, there is that part. They do run into some French agents later on though. And again, in a very amusing, like peep show esque moment where we're in like first person view of the agent that is trying to get close to his ex-girlfriend and two French like, you know, secret service guys knock on the door because they're looking for her. And then as soon as they leave and he shuts the door, we just see his hands like getting all of his belongings and like packing up a suitcase because he's like, I got to get out of here. My cover's blown, you know, like yeah. hilarious. The anti-terrorist squad is here for the Trotskyite <laughs> ex-girlfriend. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I just do. I want to highlight to how ridiculous it is when uh, one of the, you know, the surveillance agents like in the command center uh, pulls up a surrealist painting to explain that this guy likes butt sex. I mean, this, yeah, that's like an all-timer. I mean, God, that shit was killing me. It's so funny. And again, especially because I choose to believe the facts, which are that, like, they're terrible. Like, look at all the waste we see. Like, that's all I see when I'm watching this. I'm like, first of all, like, this sucks. They can just, like, destroy your life and create, you know, problems you didn't even have and kill you, you know, as a result. But it's like... It, I, I would even say, like, my my feeling on that, Marsh, is very similar, but, like, my horror is also that, like... This isn't even the state. You know, it's one thing if the state right. yeah. organizes, right, yes, exactly. you know, because they see you as like an ant. It's like, no one even knows who the fuck these guys are yeah. for. It's like, they're just some private firm that was hired to do this. You know, yeah. these guys aren't even like sworn in with a badge. They're just like <laughs> office workers. Now, interesting point about that is that I read, you know, DeVille himself claimed that he preferred the American version of this film because in it, uh, all of the agents speak English and all of the characters within, you know, the, the, the world or whatever speak French. But the only available version is the French version, which has the agent oh. speaking French. So he himself was like, it's actually better when you have that dynamic of like different languages. But yeah, because yeah. even then, if they're English speaking, like it doesn't mean they're American. It doesn't even necessarily mean they're they're British, you know? Yeah. If it's a private firm, Mars, you know, who's hiring yeah. Mars? You know, like not it's, clear. Yeah, and 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 that 
sketchiness, I think, definitely add, would have added to the vibe instead of like just the French on French version. Yeah, because again, like both films, as Ryan started to say in his intro, you know, um, it isn't about the destination, you know, for either of these films. It isn't about the the conclusion, the denouement, the 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 end result of all this bullshit. It's it's about the journey. It's it is entirely <laughs> about, you know, what happens along the way. Like, you know, this was again just some inconsequential fucking bureaucrat, and they destroyed his life and they fucking killed him. They, they, well, they they led him to kill himself. You know, just drive allegedly. His car allegedly, right? Yeah. Like all we know is that the car crashed into a tree. You know, like and he didn't bother trying to break. Like. All this happened, and and it's like it's like yeah, it, 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 none of it fucking mattered in the long run, and yet everything we saw was just so horrible. It was so awful. It was so bad. Everything about it was just so vicious and cruel and evil. You know, I mean, again, like with with uh, pacification, like. The nuclear testing, all this stuff, it was a done fucking deal. Nothing he could have done along the way right. was going to stop this. Nothing that the, the locals were going to do was going to stop this. And in fact, he, again, I, I will say, I don't think he really was trying to stop it. You know, his horror in that entire journey is just like, am I nothing? Is is all this? Is there a whole world outside of here that I mean fucking squat in? You know, that's right. like his grand realization. That's how I felt in that amazing sequence when he takes a jet ski out in the middle of the night and just rides into the ocean with a flashlight. And he's looking for fucking <laughs> submarines. He is desperately just driving into oblivion, into pure darkness, moving a flashlight around. And all I kept thinking was, what is his goal here when he finds out that there is a sub? Is it just to report back to who? Is it just mm -hmm. for himself? Does he plan on talking to any of the people in the submarine? Is he gonna like gossip with the Admiral about it later? It's, it's again, it's so mysterious, but it is him just going out and trying to make meaning to see, can I confirm this is yeah. my last desperate attempt out here in the darkness with my flashlight? Can I find an answer for if all of this is just trying to undermine my own sense of importance? Well, and that is also coupled with his, you know... I'm putting this in quotation marks, his direct confrontation of the Admiral near the end of the film, where, you know, he goes mm -hmm. up to him and sits down and is like, all right, I'm going to get him to admit this is happening. And he uses all of those skills we've seen, you know, on display of his his way of sort of nibbling around issues, of, of indirectly sort of bringing it up, but also injecting himself as in yeah, like, well, monologuing. I, yeah, like I know that this is taking place. And I, sp I spoke to so-and-so and he informed me this, so you can just admit it to me. You can just tell me that this is happening. And again, that admiral, <laughs> the actor, I mean, he is just impenetrable he just sits there across from him drunk as a skunk probably high on drugs you know thinking about maybe who he's going to go to bed with right. and he gives him nothing he can't get this guy to admit a single thing and then at the very end when he sort of feels like he's exhausted all of his 
of his skills as a pragmatist, as a communicator, as a facilitator, the, the Admiral sends him away with, with this just totally condescending statement of, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry, right? Which, again, is an admission, but it's the worst kind of admission for him because it is a dismissal. It is a, you are nothing. This is bigger than you. And, and there are forces at work here beyond your imagination, beyond your scheming. You're garbage to us. You are a clown. You're a bureaucrat. You're a fucking suit. And you are worthless to us in what we're planning, which is essentially the return of the French Empire. Right. <laughs> yeah. Under nuclear power. Yeah. But I think, again, that's why the film, you know... Is, is so potent as a 21st century paranoid text because that's uh, the feeling I've certainly had my entire <laughs> entire adult life, you know? Who's in charge here? Like, who are, who's making these decisions, yeah. right? Uh, and uh, Yeah, so... Post-World uh, <laughs> War II, the, the, the post-World War II order of, of inverted totalitarianism, which is a terrifying thing because we can't simply hang Mussolini from the fucking town square. We can't, you know, drag Hitler out of his bunker, you know? Even look at contemporary Russia and, and people's you know, sick obsession with turning Putin into this singular figure that if we got rid of Vladimir Putin, then Russia would just be a, a wonderful, magical place where none of what they're doing would go on. It's a country run by oligarchs. I mean, it's it's the design is is that Putin is a bullet catcher for a lot of these feelings. But even then, there are forces at play there probably beyond your wildest imagination. There is not a singular figure that you can find. This is, again, the, the Lacanian definition of hysteria you know railing against this big other but but also like needing that big other to be there but the the ultimate terrifying conclusion that you've come to and that we've all come to any sensible person can come to is that there is no big other to depose it would simply continue on <laughs> and i mean that's that scene with the admiral is so good because it fits in with the overall thesis that's explicitly announced at one point in the movie. Because when he's trying to get those answers from the Admiral, it almost feels like he's hitting on someone in a nightclub and he's trying to pick somebody up and then hopefully, you know, go home with a win. And he's shut down because this person <laughs> is totally out of his league. Comme je vous le disais, des intérêts hostiles à notre pays commence à être un petit peu trop prison. Ici sur l'île, il se manifeste de manière un peu grossière. Alors eux, sont moins sympathiques quand même. Plus menaçants. Je pense que ça les fraîchit quand même pour mettre le couvert. On vous a menacé And I mean, there is 
a scene in Pacifiction where it's all sort of laid out, like through all of this disorder and all of this chaos, there is some clarity that he has while still wearing his sunglasses in the middle of the night while sitting in a car. And he, yeah, he announces so many things like politics is a party with the devil or people in the dark who don't even look at each other anymore. It's the secret society of dark rooms. They control nothing. It's all an illusion, passing themselves off, thinking about nuclear explosions. They don't even know what the real danger is, you know? <laughs> and it's like, that's the metaphor for this movie. It's this big nightclub, because we have the, the Paradise Night. That's the name of the club. And the whole film is designed to feel like you're kind of like moving through a nightclub, and you're looking around, and you're very suspicious about everything that's going on. And I am so surprised that there is still sort of an answer at the end of the movie that we don't, you know, we don't need to spoil it for everybody. But I did say, right, the idea that you don't have to worry about the answer to the nuclear testing. But I guess you could say it is inevitable in certain respects that that is where things were headed. But it is that feeling of worrying about it all, being lost in the club, not being able to make meaning, having no idea who's in charge and how you even fit in, feeling like you're totally lost. To me, like that's the grand paranoia of this whole film. I also love to that scene you're describing where he, he gives, I, I believe it's the the... The, the monologue that you've just described um, in the car, you know, he's giving this as much to himself, right? Yeah. <laughs> like he's giving it to basically like himself. He's saying it to no one, but he does have somebody next to him. He has Richard Jewell in the car with him. Yeah. Falling it's asleep. just this like chubby <laughs> drunk guy that I, by this point in the film, you know, started to read as this is just some like drunk guy on vacation that he is kind of just like <laughs> kind of like co-opted into his scheme, into his attempt at sort of like solving this mystery because even like this surfer buddy of his, who's been sort of like lending him his jet skis and also trying to help him with his like, you know, sub hunting mission, like his, his like buddies, like, who the fuck is this, <laughs> this drunk guy next to you? He's like, you can trust this guy. Like, you know, he doesn't talk or whatever. He's not going to spill the beans. But it's like, I just kept thinking it was just some some drunk guy. Because that's all you ever see throughout the film is this, like, fat guy in a Hawaiian shirt, like, right. sad and drunk Dude, I somewhere. spent most of the movie going, like, who is this? Like, you know, like, <laughs> I, I understood that he was loosely connected to him, but... Uh, that's one thing that this film does that I love. What like when any movie does is just like there's a lot of suspicious characters or just like shady characters yeah. lurking around. I mean, we haven't even talked about like I don't know what you want to call him, the American, yeah. the, the the Englishman who at first appears with Batahi and the sort of like locals uh, in opposition, and then maybe not, but I, again, totally unclear and, and left kind of unexplored. But there's a part that even almost reminded me of Orders, Andy, when he goes goes to the field oh, yeah. uh, like the soccer he goes to the soccer field and just has this like really bizarre exchange of glances uh, <laughs> yeah. with this whoever this fucking spy is uh, and then he's just like hanging out in the rain and soaking it up I mean yeah no answers but a striking sequence yeah because like they they and I, again I think that's what's so like brilliant about the film is that they they introduce uh, a lot of threads that that just fray you know and the and the farther you go at trying to sort of like sort of like 
straighten them out or tug them out and make make sense of this web it it just it collapses in your hands because yes we we see him as this then we think he's some sort of like yeah american what is he cia or something like that and then it turns out he was working with the portuguese guy all along and what was that guy's mission like clearly he's not working right. with the french government but they at certain point even have a conversation directly about him and and the fact that he's falling apart and they see it and the question is, is it a circle or a spiral? Like, and if it is a spiral, let's make sure it keeps spiraling downward. But what are they after? God knows. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, like, right. it, it really doesn't matter. And we matter. haven't even brought up, too, like one of the central characters, Shana, who I think is the one who's actually pulling all of the strings. Mm. The film seems to suggest that they are the one that are just entirely in charge of everything that's going on and clearly has that hold over de Roller. I mean, it's even implied at many points that there is like some sort of intimate relationship that's going on between them, but it even feels like more broadly symbolic. And she's amazing too. Like as a yeah, performer, what a performance. just yeah. a very, and, and again, like reading this, like some Sarah interviews, he talks about her sort of ambivalence and kind of cynicism and how, you know, she's a non-professional actor, you know, just someone who lives there. And he was just like, you, like, you're very striking and I can't really, like, read you. And that's what's interesting, right? So she's like this perfect, you know, I don't want to say foil, but, like, companion, but also there's a lot hinted at that could be could be sort of read into, right? And I think mm -hmm. that, again, goes back to what I had said earlier, where for me, I think my favorite depictions of paranoia artistically, cinematically, are those that, that aren't answered, that those that, that don't give us a clear conclusion, you know? Because to me, like, paranoia is a state that you should be in, and... and there's reasons why certain, you know, psych psychiatrists and psychotherapists, you know, would describe paranoia as this sort of like mental illness because the essence of it, you know, it's certainly a, as it was originally conceived was that it was like, this is all unfounded, right? This is a, the, a it's a sense of you seeing, I think Lacan would say, hostile potentialities everywhere, right? That, that, you know, when you have an interaction with someone, you know, you walk away from that interaction being like, that person hates me. They're, they're scheming against me. They want me to fall apart. You know, like my coworkers are trying to get me fired, right? You just, in every interaction, there's perceived slights or, or aggressions that, that are underneath the surface of everything. And yet, none of them can actually be proven. None of them could, could really be sort of like, you know, evidenced other than within that subjective view of a, an encounter with someone, you know? And so, look, there's, there's great films, you know, about paranoia that do lead to like, oh, it's this bad guy and they did this. And it can still, you know, show you showcase paranoia very well but again personally for me i think i gravitate towards the ones that end in question marks that end in oblivion that end in confusion more than they do in in solutions i mean to me that's more meaningful than having a solution you know uh, that's like what I love about postmodern art and postmodern thought is that the the answers are the chaos. Paranoid films are so appealing to me because all the meaning you can gather is from 
the chaos that's around all of it. It can't be boiled down to a simple answer. It's it's this web that like those are the solutions, just being lost in the web itself and that feeling that is what the contemporary world feels like and that's what the contemporary world is. Yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would encourage listeners to... Yeah, see if you can track down a copy of Dossier 51. It is an unforgettable experience. And run to the theater to go see Passive Fiction because that is the the ideal environment to catch that thing. Uh, really a stunning and, and immersive work. But yeah, I guess, you know, the, these movies clearly made us a bit paranoid. Uh, so I think job well done. But Andy, if we want to keep keep feeling that feeling, where else should we look? What would you... Uh, recommend as like some of the great paranoid works well you know i think marsh said it very well like in his intro and and you you sort of also hit on it as well look like i think the 60s and 70s are very well covered territory and 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 there's there's so many great ones in there um i mean i would even just put up the entire filmography of of uh you know former guest on the pod costa gavras i mean that is yep. a a master of of paranoia and and political intrigue but to go outside of that 60s and 70s thing a little bit two two recommendations that i would have of of slightly more contemporary depictions of paranoia that that i uh, absolutely adore. Uh, number one, I'd have to say Terry Gilliam's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh, I, I think that that is a great descent into a very different kind of, well, I guess there's a little bit of politics in there as well. The paranoid style. Yeah. I mean, the essence of Hunter S. Thompson's, you know, um, writing, you know, fear and loathing, you know, this, this just general sense of, of doom, uh, pervading again, all society that, that swirls around us. So I think that's a, a really great one. Um, but then I would also have to say a movie, you know, and a filmmaker that we all really, really love. Um, I think Claire Denise Beau Travail is again another amazing descent into very subjective kind of paranoia that that doesn't provide us with any easy answers or solutions. And I actually watching Pacifiction saw, you know, you mentioned some of the 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 maybe cinematic inspiration and influence, but I kind of felt a little bit of that from from like Beau Travai as well. And again, the the like dance scene that we see with the Admiral certainly reminded me of of Beau Travai quite a bit. You know, it's like after all this paranoia, like what can one do other than dance? Dance with the hunks. Yeah, yeah. dance with the hunks or yourself in a world gone mad, you know? See, and I I mean I think of Claire Denis uh L'Entruz, which features a man Going to Tahiti, yeah. to the land of pacifiction. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, her films, yeah, there are a lot of films of hers that are just, like, totally soaked in paranoia. White material is very is yeah, very much yeah. up there. I mean, Bastards is up there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, it was... My week? Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think Ryan's up next, right? That's Ryan, right. What do you got? It's me again. Well, I've been seeing... So I only get like a cursory glance at it. I'm very glad I'm not on film Twitter. It doesn't seem like a space I'd really want to like hang out in. I'm not on Twitter, but every you now and then... You can just follow who you want, you know. No, I know, I know, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. 
But it does, uh, I somehow, some things ended up across my desk uh, when I was bored at work, uh, just browsing and seeing all this discourse around naughty stuff. Um, and I've noticed that it, it got reignited because Criterion just announced they're doing an erotic thriller series on the Criterion channel. And I know that there's been all this talk from like Gen Z people being like sex scenes aren't worthwhile in movies and they don't advance the plot. It's an age old discussion, right? Um, And we have, you know, we've even talked about like, you know, how just sex is gone from contemporary cinema. So I thought, you know what? We could ride that wave a little bit and have some fun. Let's get steamy. (laughs) Uh, That's it. Let's get some, doesn't even need to be an erotic thriller. Let's just get some steamy stuff on the pod and uh, see where we end up. Should we watch uh, Color of Night again? You know, I mean, that was pretty steamy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be the first movie we bring back. <laughs> yeah, dude, let's bring it back, dude. Dangerous one wet. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Pas de traces de